This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Rose Fox is on vacation this week. On today's show, the authors who collaborate as A.J. Rich discuss their new novel, The Hand That Feeds You. Then, PW's executive editor, Jim Milliot, discusses Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Rose usually does the fiction. I'm going to do it this week. So, at number one is, we have a new debut, number one, Daniel Silva, The English Spy, and that's coming out at about 40,000 copies sold this week. He's a best-selling author of, uh, and here they say we, uh, he delivers another stunning thriller in the latest action-packed tale of high stakes. It's an international thriller. Next up, we have Brad Taylor. This is at number 15. This is our, that's the next debut at number 15. The book is called The Insider Threat, a Pike Logan Thriller. Here, we say Pike Logan and the members of the secret American anti-terrorist unit task force go up against the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in Taylor's solid, though sometimes confusing, eighth installment in the best-selling series. We say Pike has his usual steady hand on the stick, and in the end, he's the one left standing with his enemies strewn about his feet. And that is at number 15. And at number 19, we have Diana Palmer in Untamed. And in our review, we say the uh, description is mercenary and secret agent Stanton Rourke risks his life on a daily basis. And he'll go out on a limb, even for people he despises, such as journalist Clarice Carrington. We say that he follows as quickly as he can, and as enemies from around the world track them to his tiny corner of Texas, Stanton ably proves to Tat that she can count on his love and protection. Readers don't need to be familiar with Palmer's work to enjoy this contemporary romantic thriller. And then I'd just like to dip into uh, the trade paper, and just to comment a little bit on Grey, Fifty Shades of Grey is told by Christian, by E.L. James. This is still number one, not surprisingly, and according to Nielsen Bookscan, it sold nearly 800,000 copies. That just registers, the Nielsen does not uh, uh, register uh, e-books, that's just uh, print books, and we are assuming that just as many uh, e-books have been sold. So it's proven quite a seller, and we're not surprised by that. But uh, it's it's pretty interesting just to see. I don't know. I'm just looking at the numbers and just looking at how much that has moved. Going to the nonfiction list, uh, we've got at number one, and this is not a debut. This is the second week there. The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing by Marie Kondo. Now, this book, this is a nonfiction book. It's been hugely popular, selling at nearly 500,000 copies. I mean, this is huge. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that just to just to take a look to see what another book that's just selling in large numbers. I mean, this is, again, hugely popular as evidenced by those. So it's very good. A Time for Truth. 
Reigniting the Promise of America by Ted Cruz. This is at number four. And uh, as, as, uh, we don't have a review of this book in, but according to the, uh, his publicity material, the outspoken Texas senator has a knack for getting under the skin of liberals. His quotable remarks and even more, his principled stands on numerous national issues have made him a political lightning rod and the most Googled man in Washington, again, according to his publicity. And that's at number four. Number 10, we've got Phil McGraw, The 2020 Diet, Turn Your Weight Loss Vision into Reality. And we know him as uh, Dr. Phil. And again, whenever he has a book that's out, it's going to be on the bestseller list. At number 23, we have The Oregon Trail, An American Journey by Rinker Buck. And our review says, despite growing up on the East Coast, Buck's uh, fondest childhood memories are of going on family trips with his eccentric father, who insisted on seeing America slowly by traveling and camping out in a covered wagon. Uh, we say, in closing, even readers who don't know a horse from a mule will find themselves swept up in this inspiring and masterful tale of perseverance and the pioneer spirit. And finally, at number 36, I Am Charlie Wilson by Charlie Wilson. This is the R&B singer Wilson, uh, who has had, um, who's best known for his involvement starting the Gap Band, which was really called the Greenwood Archer Pine Street Band. Uh, uh, and we say in this, it's a rep- repetitious but inspiring memoir as Wilson uh, watches his father, Church of God preacher, jumping, singing, and stirring souls in their Tulsa, Oklahoma church in the 1950s and 60s. We say that Wilson's engaging story frames the excesses of a life in popular music while illustrating the ways that faith, love, and determination can overcome even major obstacles. So that's what we have on the uh, bestseller list i'm mark fratella and this is publishers weekly radio next up the authors behind the pseudonym aj rich we'll be right back i'm kate bolick author of spinster and you're listening to publishers weekly radio I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Amy Hempel and Jill Cement in the studio with me. Their shared pseudonym is A.J. Rich, and their book is The Hand That Feeds You. Hello, Amy and Jill. So glad you could join us. Hi, thank you. So you two teamed up to write this mystery. So tell us a little bit about it. It's the story of a young woman who specializes in, she goes to um, John um, John Jay College, and she's Um, in forensic psychology, and she's studying victimization in order to be able to... Victimology. Victimology. In order to be able to um, understand who is going to be trapped by predators. And she does... uh, The book opens with a scene that I don't mind revealing because it happened so quickly. She comes home to find her fiancé mauled to death. And her three dogs who, that she loves incredibly, there's a great Pyrenees and two rescue pits, are covered in blood. Mm. And it's about her trying to understand first whether her own dogs are guilty and then later trying to understand who this man was that she had fallen in love with. Because she discovers um, uh, levels and levels and layers and layers of deception on his part. Um, uh, but we appreciate and are interested in irony. Mm. So the fact of a woman who is studying victimology, um, uh, becoming herself a kind of victim, uh, was something very interesting to work with. 
Sure. So, so tell us a little bit about Morgan. I mean, who is she? I mean, other than a student of forensic, is it forensic anthropology? Forensic, forensic psychology. 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 Um, well, I had um, some years earlier enrolled at John Jay College of Criminal Justice to study uh, forensic psychology, criminology, and although I didn't last long in the program, um, it was fascinating, and it's a long-time interest, and um, Jill brought uh, a, a great understanding of Williamsburg, the neighborhood in Brooklyn where she lives, um, and just other of our passions and interests um, started to come together um, to fill out the character of this woman. Um, you know, she's somebody who is, I would say, open for business. She's um, risky. She's um, been around the block. Yes. <laughs> and she's also totally impassioned about her love for dogs. Mm. And that is, I think, one of the driving forces of, of the novel. And, you know, it you're introduced to a world of dog rescue, which Amy, you know, has been very involved right. in. Sure. And, you know, I, a lot of the novel comes out of that passion. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of her character does. And so tell us a little bit about Bennett. What do we know of this Bennett person who, um, without without going too much further, mm -hmm. I know this all this is in the opening scene that everything mm -hmm. just kind of unravels just a little, or at least this is the uh, the opening bit. Well, Bennett. How, how does she? How does she? How does she meet Bennett? She meets Bennett because she is. Um, she's posted some um, questionnaires online. She's going to these different sites, you know, the dating sites, trying to figure out if she can ask the right kind of questions that would, you know, set off alarms for a predator. And she meets Bennett because he's part of the control group, the group of men that are normal. Mm -hmm. And she. You know, he's so charming in his answers to her that she starts to be interested in, and they have this long-distance relationship. He lives in Montreal, or at least he claims to live in Montreal. I just thought I'd throw uh, that in. Nice. And this is a Jill Cement talking who uh, uh, was born or grew up in Montreal. Yeah. So so uh, Jill knows from Montreal. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So... Um, how did you come up with her? So you came up with her career because you studied at John Jay. How old? How old? About how old is she? About thirty. About thirty. So she's gone back. This is something she's gone back to do. It's graduate study. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as she's trying to solve the mystery, she's also trying to save her two, three dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, one, one, two dogs. Two dogs. Oh, okay. All right. That's right. Um, and you've just said that this is something that uh, Amy has been, Amy, I know, has been has written about mm -hmm. uh, dogs before, but is also yeah. active in that. How do all these things come into play? One of the, the scenes that take place later, and I won't give the, con you know, I won't give away the scene, but... You know, we were writing, it was very interesting, we were writing on Google Drive at this point where we were both looking at the same screen, mm -hmm. and we were in different cities. I was in Florida, and, sh and Amy was in Connecticut, and we had to do a scene in a shelter where Amy worked, and so we're, she's sort of leading us through the shelter, we're transcribing this into language, mm -hmm. and every time I got blind, I would ask her, well, where is this? And by having a reader reading something simultaneously as someone's writing, we were able to really describe something in a way that I think 
is visceral for the reader because when I was lost as we were doing it, I knew which questions to ask right. and to steer you visually through this really horrific shelter where Amy volunteered for uh, years. Right. But also, um, a- any time you are expert at something, it begins to come naturally. It comes naturally to you. And so if you try and tell somebody about it for the first time or say, say you're an expert knitter and you try and teach somebody to knit, you're often not good at it because you skip over things. It's, it's just right. second nature. Right. So what Jill's saying was, was, was very valuable. Yeah. In conveying the specifics. Um, you also throughout make uh, references to the book Dangerous Liaisons. Talk about that. Well, it's, a, it's such a wonderful story. And uh, at the heart of it is a relationship, mm-hmm. a passionate relationship uh, between a man and a woman, aristocratic French, uh, in I think is it the 17th century, 18th yeah. century. Um, anyway, they... Um, they perform for each other by seducing unsuspecting people and hurting them. And they, get, they take pleasure in their conquests and in the, the details. Mm. And, and, and it, it feeds their own kind of erotic relationship. And it's very uh, sort of sick. <laughs> it's very twisted. Right. Uh, and it's beautifully written. So it's extremely compelling. And we revisited that classic um, and without giving too much away may uh, took advantage of uh, something of the dynamic there right and so uh, does does Morgan in the novel have people other friends people who she's bouncing ideas off um, or or is she in this pretty much on her own there are two other major people who are in her life Um, well actually there's three there's a woman named Kathy who died of breast cancer, who is a memory for her, um, a kind of longing for friendship. And then there are two men, her brother Stephen, who she's really close to, who had been um, a a lawyer in Afghanistan. And my brother is a lawyer in Afghanistan, so I was able to use a lot of um, anecdotes that he's told me about. And the other person is a guy named Mackenzie, who is an animal rights lawyer, who's helping her get her dogs free. And he plays a very major role in it. And he's, you know, he sort of represents, um, you know, a really new field of law, which is asking questions about whether animals have, you know, civil rights. Right. I think it's pretty wonderful that uh, we're going to talk about this. I I guess this is a good time to talk about the origination of the book. So um, the book was inspired by the writer, Catherine Russell Rich, who died of breast cancer at age 56. I guess it was three years ago? Yeah. Three years ago. Uh, she was the author of The Red Devil, uh, a memoir about cancer. And I, and I want to say here that when that book came out, it was an editor here at Publishers Weekly. I had reached out to her. My wife uh, at age 30 was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, I spent some time with, with Catherine talking, mm. About, mm. Uh, talking about this experience. And she was really wonderful and, and kind of helpful helping me navigate this really terrifying, terrifying yeah. course filled mm-hmm. with all kinds of obstacles and things that I never thought I would have to learn. Um, and you had mentioned one of the characters uh, in her book is a, uh, or at least the, 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 the memory who Morgan talks to is a, is a woman named Catherine who she talks to. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, that, I, I would just like to know, and I know the three of you were friends, how yes. did this idea 
come about? What was the kernel? Tell us about uh, uh, Catherine and, and that, and I, and I believe she had written a, a chapter or at least the Not beginning really. of a chapter um, of, of, of a book. Kathy had a romance with somebody, um, a serious romance near the end of her life. And um, when a serious deception was discovered there, Kathy wanted to write a novel about it. Um, she and I talked some about what she wanted to do, um, but I didn't see anything on paper. Uh, we only recently <laughs> learned that there was anything on paper. There was, there, there was, oh, wow. but it was really only a couple of pages, right? And it, it, um, it is said not to make any real sense because it was written when the cancer had gone to her brain. But right. it's an right. indication of how badly she did want to right. write about it. And Jill and I thought, not too long after mm. Kathy's death, oh well, you know what? What if we wrote it for her? I mean, we had the experience of going through her relationship. I mean, I talked to Kathy like three or four times a week, and she would read me his emails <laughs> and her emails mm, back to right. him. And, you know, this is a woman who is at the end of her life. The idea that she's falling in love, you're, you you know, you we went on the highs and the lows with mm -hmm. her. We mostly went, highs. Yeah, mostly <laughs> high until the deception. Until. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we went through the lows. Right. And, you know, Kathy was totally obsessed with sociopaths, and she gave me books to reach. And so when she died, and we didn't know what she was going to write about, we felt like at least we had the same information that any fiction writer has who's lived through something, mm -hmm. right. rather than just finding a story in a magazine and using that. So even though we don't know what she was going to write about, we all at least shared her experience, and and however you transform that into fiction is the individual writers. Or so in the core case. experience that she had remained the core of our novel, right. uh, which is highly, highly invented. Right. Uh, I mean, it is by no means her story, but that core experience does power the novel, and um, and we thought. What a kick she would have gotten from this! Right, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Now, um, I, unless I'm wrong, neither one of you writes mysteries. <laughs> what I mean, was this something like? We you read had this them. You read them. Oh, great. well, was this something that inspired you? Like, we've got a whole different story here. What can we do? How did the mis mysterious element, uh, narrative element, come about? Well, I can say that I, I think that for us, doing something because first collaborating was such a new thing i mean you know that alone was so new sure. and so you know we wanted to try something really new and and we are both real thriller buffs right. and and so we thought this would be the perfect story for it and so we god knows why we, we just sat down and did it well also i felt that the level of betrayal mm -hmm. in in the situation that is to say betraying a woman who's dying I thought that was criminal right or approaching it and that I think is what maybe pushed me in the direction of thinking thriller mystery thriller mystery because um, it was it was kind of violent mm. uh, it was gratuitous cruelty at a level that 
um, incensed me. It's an unspeakable level to, you know, to, I mean, she, this man knew how sick she was. So to deceive that is right. on the verge. So even though Morgan is not, you know, in, in mortally um, ill, right. the deception level is what we were using. Right. Oh, completely. Right. Right. And you were able to kill him off at the same point. <laughs> Most <laughs> pleasurable thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Amy Hempel and Jill Cement, who write together as A.J. Rich. So we were just talking about the writing process, how you came together. And you did tell us a little bit about the process, about, say, working remotely to different states under with uh, Google Docs. Tell us a little bit more about that process. I mean, neither one of you had, unless I'm going to say, collaborated with anyone else. How did you two know you could do it? And was there a conversation that you said, we should just do this? We, first of all, have known each other about 35 years. Wow, wonderful. So we knew, for example, we had the same sense of humor. We uh, admire the same kinds of things in fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, We could work together without ego. Right which would really get in the way with some people. (laughs) So those things we knew going in. And, of course, we shared um, our love of Kathy and our friendship, deep friendship with Kathy. So to me, that seemed like enough to go on. Um, And, again, I want to stress the no ego uh, as being a crucial part of, of this. I mean, we almost never argued. It was as if if one of us had a better idea... It was so apparent to the other mm-hmm. that why would you argue for your horrible idea? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. But people do right, all right. the time. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we, we talked about this before. Um, Amy, you're a short story writer with such titles as The Dog of Marriage and At the Gates of the Animal Kingdom. And you had mm-hmm. talked about, uh, and you're also in, uh, in I guess, in, uh, you've worked in a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I want you to talk a little bit more about how that idea about to bring the dogs into the uh, book at this point. When did that come in? Um, I think really at the start or almost the start because, uh, again, it's bringing our own interests right. and, and our areas of expertise to work. Um, and it's just fascinating to see uh, what obsession you could mm-hmm. call uh, right. passion you could call it obsession mm-hmm. as well and obsession to me is always interesting and it will uh, it will it will creep into other areas of one's life or a character's life so when Jill brought in say swimming which is one of her uh, obsessions or passions um, it resulted in an image I w- won't give away but it's mm-hmm. it's one of my favorite images in the book and um well, as I said, that's yeah. pretty much it, the yeah, obsession. And also, I think that when we, I think one of the starting, like, you know, for me, when I start a novel, I always have to have an image to start with. Mm. And the opening scene of this book, which involves dogs, 
that was like this image and so w- once we had that scene we had to carry it through with dogs <laughs> <laughs> so jill you write in longer form so um amy you mostly write short stories mm-hmm. some poetry or prose poems maybe. prose poems okay mm-hmm. all right and and uh jill you've written novellas a memoir in your most recent novel which just came out i guess just a few months ago act mm-hmm. of god um did 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 you uh I, i'm just trying to feel how like each of you your writing uh styles came uh came to this i mean uh it takes i think it's hard to keep a narrative going for uh hundreds of pages mm-hmm. yet the detail in a short story is often so specific mm-hmm. that 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 it requires its own kind of mm-hmm. um talent and and artistry how did you two writing in two different forms bring that about what was the the process like did well we talked about you know obviously Amy in a short story is creating a narrative right. and obviously I'm writing in sentences okay but what we realized was what we felt confident about and I feel really confident about plot and a global kind of thinking and Amy feels incredibly confident on the sentence level and that kind of confidence that each has in its own specific area mm-hmm. was able to kind of release us from that nagging doubt that every writer feels all the time because you had someone who didn't have that nagging doubt in something that you've always had that nagging (laughs) doubt in. And that was kind of a remarkable experience because it allowed us to write much faster than either of us have been able to. Our abilities really dovetailed, Mm -hmm. but we figured going in that they would because of the writers that we are individually. And I, I know a lot of people have, have said to us already they, you know, they assumed that we wrote um, uh, like one would write a chapter the other would edit it and vice versa but right. that really isn't the way it happened at all so how how did it happen so who wrote the first uh, the first bit and I mean did you we, we wrote s- everything together we wrote everything wow. we sat down at first we sat we were in my apartment in Williamsburg and Amy was coming over and we would write for three hours and Side by side. Side by side. One computer. One computer. Sometimes I would type. Sometimes she would type. Sometimes you'd say, I've got an idea. And you'd run to the typewriter. And it was typewriter. I can't even believe I said that. Yeah, you said typewriter. (laughs) So was there anything that surprised during this process uh, that surprised uh, either of you about the kind of writer you were or or that, that that this kind of project, this book brought out different kinds of uh kind of tapped into different um thoughts or different talents that you might have had well as jill said the speed with which we produced it right compared to the time we normally take mm-hmm. right to produce a, a completed work of fiction was astonishing but also one of the things for me that was really interesting is you know i've been married for 43 years mm-hmm. and you know, I almost think I know the way Amy thinks more than I do my husband, okay? <laughs> because, you know, when you're writing together and you get to a scene and you're trying to figure out what that character would do and somebody else has a totally different take on it, you're, it's like you're visiting, you're seeing how another human being thinks. And, you know, you, you're you under this 
misnomer that everyone thinks like you, and they don't. And that, to me, was really revelatory. It was really interesting. And it sounded like you two saw eye to eye every step of the way. I mean, were there any discussions? Did one of you at any one point say, you know what, I really think this is the, the way the plot should go. This is a turn. And then one of you maybe thought, let me think about that and, and come back to it at a different angle. I, I don't recall that so much as mm-hmm. when we turned a, the first draft into our wonderful editor, Nan Graham, um, she came back with um, some very detailed and very useful thoughts about um, revision. And um, that's more when that mm. came into play. We thought, oh, yeah, that, that does make sense. Oh, we don't need that. She's right. She's right. And right. Yeah. It was, all, it was logical. Yeah, sure, It, it felt sure. like a logical way to work the whole time. And the revisions, that always tough. And, I, and you were talking about you didn't have that nagging doubt when, when you're writing individually or mm-hmm. you know, solitarily. But uh, with the revisions, was this something you were able to both, I mean, you were a team, like, all right, what do you think? Is, you know, is, is this the way to go? Or, I mean, because often I know when an editor says this needs to be, uh, this needs to be addressed or, or mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to see this changed, you realize that, well, I, I like it the way it is, but I obviously need to explain a little bit more or do a little bit, you know, digging a little bit deeper into that. These were really intelligent edits. I yeah. mean, they weren't, you know, this was somebody who was trying to, give us an objective way and and most of the edits were I don't think we I I would say we took 99% of the edits easily easily yeah yeah Yeah. of course which is a great gift right right so you both are teachers. I'm just going to move a little bit away. Uh, both mm-hmm. professors, um, uh, both at uh, the University of Florida and uh, Jill, you're where else right now? No, I'm, I just teach at the University of Florida. I okay, also teach at the Bennington MFA program. All uh, right. Okay. Um, what's it like as a writer uh, also teaching? Does one fuel the other or do you, do you separate the two? You know, Obviously, you're a better teacher if you practice what you're teaching. Right. And, you know, the older I get as a writer, the more experience I get, my teaching methods change. I mean, at first, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite different. And the University of Florida is this really small program we get. I don't know, we have like three, four hundred applications, and we pick six students. And so... Wow. I know. I think it's harder to get into than Harvard Med <laughs> <Wow>. School. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, I always think of the MFA as a kind of, you know, it used to be an apprenticeship in, in the cafes and, you know, older writers would take on, and now it's been institutionalized, but that's essentially what it is. Right. And so what about, uh, um, you know, as, as a professor, I mean, I I imagine I, I, you know, I also coach hockey and I, and I think, uh, and I teach as well, but sometimes it's helpful to go over the basics for my own writing. Sometimes uh, by reading literature, different kinds of things that I'm introducing to a class, um, it might just jar something for me. Rereading great stories and trying to get other people to understand why they're great is really one part of teaching, but the other part of teaching is you're reading their stories, and so you know, you're, it, it's a very different level. I mean, you're not, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get somebody to, for me, usually to probe deeper into, you know, why they're trying to write about what they're trying to write about. Yeah. 
So, uh, can I ask if there's uh, if this has been such a great process? You might have another uh, book that you both will co-write down the line. Has this sparked? We have a couple of ideas for books right. that um, uh, we both find very compelling um, that I think would be worth the time and attention. We have not decided officially right. whether we will go ahead. Um, I don't know when we'll know, <laughs> but um, there's certainly material there. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I've been talking with Amy Hempel and Jill Cement. You can find their book, The Hand That Feeds You, in stores right now. Jill and Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW's own Jim Milliot talks about Harper Lee's new old novel, so stay tuned. I'm Eric Burns, the author of 1920, The Year That Made the Decade Roar. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW's own editorial director, Jim Milliot, is here to tell us about Harper Lee's novel, Go Set a Watchman. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. You so, look lonely today. I Where's am lonely. I am lonely without Rose. It's <laughs> it's kind of tough doing a solo uh, a solo uh, event here. I <laughs> but bet. I'm glad you're here. It's a familiar face. Oh, uh, thanks. So the book is set to publish next Tuesday. Uh, no one, as far as I know, uh, has seen uh, a copy of the book. Uh, I think we're going to be getting it sent to us on Tuesday, the day of. But there's obviously been a lot of talk about it, and we're also planning a feature uh, for Monday's issue. So tell us about what to expect or all the news <laughs> well, around it. Well, I wish I could tell you what to expect, <laughs> but I think that's one of the... The things that's striving interest in this book as is the unexpected. Right. Uh, you know, it's safe to say that this really has been the most hyped book by the mainstream press for sure right. since I think the last um, the last Harry Potter. Right. Uh, there's been you know story after story you know in you know practically every imaginable uh, imaginable vehicle right. from television to books to news to blogs, um, and the hype just seems to to keep building towards that uh, midnight uh, release uh, next Monday night for Tuesday morning. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, and we're also coming on the heels of yet another bestseller uh, novel, uh, uh, Gray. Uh, so it's, it's, been, it's been a big month for, for books. Right, right. Yeah. It was something that, you know, the industry was looking for. I mean, they were looking for a big book to uh, stir things up. You know, and uh, Watchmen was announced in February, so right. so people were expecting, oh, July, that's going to be terrific. And then, sort of out of the blue, came along uh, Gray, and right. uh, that gave a, a big kickstart to sales. And now they're hoping that uh, the same thing will continue uh, with Watchmen. And it's not just the publishers that published a book that benefited. I mean, the bookstores, you know, are looking to bring customers into their stores you know right. they buy one book and hopefully they'll buy another book right sure and what are what can we tell about the uh, pre-order numbers so far for this well you know the number that's been out there for a while is harper uh harper collins i was calling harper the other day to somebody else on another radio show i'm afraid <laughs> to say and they kept thinking i was talking about harper lee <laughs> but no harper collins has done a uh 
a first printing of two million, which is I think the biggest for this summer. And the Harper and Collins has said it's the big pre-ordered book they've ever had. Amazon just this morning. Uh, and I think they've said this before, but anyway, uh, Thursday morning they announced that it's in the pre-order stage. It's the best-selling book on their website right now. To Kelly Mockingbird, I think, was number seven. Mm. So, you know, across the board, interest is really heavy. So who's so that's generating sales, obviously, for To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, and who's publishing that right now? To Kelly Mockingbird has an interesting history. Um, the hardcover was published by J.P. Lippincott in 1960. Wow. Um, and Lippincott was eventually acquired by Harper and Row, and Harper and Row was eventually merged with William Collins to form Harper Collins uh, a number of years ago. But the paperback rights, uh, well, they do a trade paperback, Harper does, but the paperback rights are now published by Grand Central Publishing. Um, wow. And that is kind of a, an interesting history, you know, and it reflects for sure the way the industry's consolidated. So to make a longer story shorter, um, Popular Library, which was uh, one of the first mass market publishers, published the mass market paperback edition in 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kept getting acquired and getting acquired. And eventually it ended up with uh, Warner Books, which was part of Warner Communications, which merged with Time Inc. to form Time Warner Books. And then Time Warner Books was bought by Hachette. And then Hachette changed the name of, of Time Warner. They, they couldn't use the Warner name, so they changed the imprint name to Grand Central. So that's how it's become Grand Central Publishing. Wow. And this is what we love so much about uh, institutional memory. Because <laughs> there you go. If everybody's still with us. <laughs> You've been around for at least half those mergers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I'm sure I wrote about half those mergers. <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the feature that is running on Monday. Well, um, well we have, that'll be in. Plus, we have... Um, it's going to be really on the, the website, I think. We've asked different authors to uh, weigh in about the, or their remembrances of reading uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and how they uh, had affected you know, their, their careers and, and, the, and their personal view of things. And so I think we'll keep that a bit of a secret. It's, I think the coolest one we've got right now is from an author whose, I think it was grandmother, lived two doors away from... Uh, from Harper Lee. Mm. And so he would be reading, he read the book and then his grandmother would point out, and that's where um, Harper was when she was writing the book. And he said it really brought everything uh, wow. to life. Wow. So that, that's, that's pretty cool. And Harper Lee grew up with Truman Capote, uh, which was which was kind of interesting. Uh, each other, she was he was actually a character in To Kill a Mockingbird, one that they made fun of. Uh, so it's it's. Right. Well, that's part of, I think, the whole, like we say, why the, there's so much interest. It's, you hear a lot more of these types of stories. And, of course, there's the whole element of, you know, it was this undiscovered manuscript that, you know, kind of mysteriously appeared. Right. Yeah, and the controversy in, uh, uh, surrounding it. Where did this manuscript come from? How come it was only discovered, well, just basically a couple of years ago? Uh, um, 
And, right, yeah, kind of, you know, out of the And blue, why no one yeah. wants to talk about it. No one who <laughs> discovered it wants to talk about it. Right, right, right. You know, and it's all, and you know, Harper Lee's obviously elderly, and everybody's really very much afraid of being accused of taking advantage of her, and certainly there's yeah. been some accusations floating around about that. And, of course, the, the, the biggest unknown is, is the book any good? Right, exactly, exactly. But... I guess no matter what, um, it, it's going to be a win for publishers. I mean, for the publisher, for uh, HarperCollins, um, which has already generated so many sales. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think they should sell out that $2 million. We'll see if it yeah. goes higher than that. You know, and as we talk to, you know, the bookstores are really excited. You know, going yeah. back to the Potter days, lots of them are having some sort of party or opening on you know, midnight or really early in the morning. Well, I was wondering exactly that. What are uh, bookstores doing when obviously, you know, when, without author events or how, how are they, how are they doing this? Well, it's, there's a lot of just celebrations of, you know, either Southern type of mystique or something around To Kill a Mockingbird or read-ins of To Kill. A lot of it's building on To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. I know there's a bookstore in a, uh, Boston, I think, on the Monday evening is, you know, having a, a film, you know, they can go watch uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, oh, wow. and then we'll discuss it, and then I guess, you know, they'll have the people there, and at midnight, when they can actually sell the book, they will right. sell the book. Right. Um, so there's a lot of that, I mean, you know, Barnes & Noble's having events um, throughout all its stores, Books A Million, of course, headquartered in Alabama, is offering a package with, you know, you get a both Harper Lee books and oh. something else for a bit of a discount. So, you know, the booksellers are really, you know, playing this up. Great. Good. I mean, it's great to see excitement. Like I said, not just about one book, but two books now. Uh, I mean, basic, both, both Harper Lee books. I mean, obviously, you know, stores will be selling both books. So, um, and that's going to help boost. Right. Yeah, I think excitement around bookstores, like, you know, just getting people into the stores is, you know, it's going to be a boom all the way around. So what's the word on the street about the book? Anything you've <laughs> you heard? You tell Anything me. <laughs> <laughs> All this Harper Row keeps uh, Harper yeah. Row. Harper Collins keeps saying it's really good. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know. It's going to be an exciting Tuesday. So, Jim, thank you so much for coming. On. Anytime, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 